Hi, I'm Isra Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hunt. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Joining us now, the director of the Dynasty. He is back to recap episodes three and four, Matt Hamachek. Matt, how are you, man? I'm good. I'm good. I'm happy to be back and happy to talk about these episodes. Yeah, there were a lot of juicy items in these last two episodes. And in particular, let's start with Parcells and Kraft because you guys go through Kraft buys the team and he's sort of the savior here. I mean, people in New England were worried about losing their football team. Kraft comes in, he buys the team. You have Parcells as the head coach, who, of course, had won two Super Bowls with the Giants, was this legendary coach. And then there's this friction between Kraft and Parcells. And it's kind of amazing because this team is getting ready to play in the Super Bowl after the 96 season. They're getting ready to take on the Green Bay Packers with Brett Favre. So it was a really good team. Yet Parcells and Kraft are at odds. And it appears that most of it, and you guys get into it in the documentary, Parcells is upset that sort of that Kraft wants somebody else to handle sort of the drafting process, which, by the way, I think part of it was. 96 he didn't want to take terry glenn and terry glenn the late terry glenn ended up being a really good contributor and a guy that parcells would later bring over to dallas with him when he was the head coach of the dallas cowboys so it's kind of ironic there but so what what did you make of that whole relationship because it seems like through the documentary those two guys still dislike each other (laughs) um i think again this was one of these things where i just you know, I knew in as we started to talk to people that this was an important part of it, right? Because of two things. The first was that it was to, in my mind, really a, the end of that, the end of that section in this, and the point of having Parcells in in the first place was about this idea of whether you side with Robert Kraft or you side with Bill Parcells. I think the entire third episode was about team first and the the concept of team first, right? And so at the end of that, that's where Robert sort of talks about how he wanted to find a coach who had who took team first above anything else. And in that, he found Bill Belichick. And then you start to watch Bill Belichick go through the not only um, <clears throat> you know not only the thing with Lawyer Malloy and the and the hotel room and everything like that, but just it it also includes. What I arguably think is one of the best lines of the entire series when Ted, Teddy Bruschi talks about how the Patriot Way sort of started with Drew Bledsoe and, and him not making a mess of that entire season. But getting back to the um, 
the Parcells thing, it was fascinating to me to, to see that both of them still sort of had this thing that they could, they, they really, in a lot of ways, haven't moved on from. And, you know, Parcells is obviously this legend. And one of the things that I wanted to do when uh, I got to sit down across from him was really get his point of view and let him see it, tell it from his side. Because I think that while we needed to get to the point where we understood one of the reasons that Robert chose um, Bill Belichick and really put his faith in him. I also wanted to make sure that this wasn't just sort of a, a quick thing that we did just to get to that point. And I wanted people to really understand why Bill was frustrated with it. And you can understand if you won two Super Bowls and you feel like you have a good grasp on, I mean, this is arguably one of the best coaches in the history of the NFL that we're talking about here. So you can imagine why somebody like that who if if my memory serves me, you know, would go on to continue to do this thing where he would come on to teams that were struggling and rebuild them and get them back into sort of playoff contention. And that was sort of a thing that he did towards the end of his career after he left the Giants. And you can understand why he would sort of think like, why should I listen to anybody else? Why wouldn't I just sort of trust my own instincts? And why should I take this person that, you know, I don't think should be there? Uh, but you're right. I think that Terry Glenn obviously did have, um, you know, a very good impact, obviously, on that team. But in a weird way, the sort of the the details of all of that weren't as important to me as sort of showing this team coming together. And that's what the purpose of that scene is. That's what the purpose of sort of all of the scenes are leading up to the beginning of the Super Bowl 36, which just it was all about people subjugating their egos and doing what's best for the team and this idea, which I know a lot of people sort of, you know, I've heard Tom and Bill both sort of dismiss the idea of the phrase, the Patriot way, but that, it, this idea of the Patriot way of selflessness and team first and all that kind of stuff. So um, that was a lot of the point of all of the scenes leading up to that. Yeah. And I wonder too, from Parcell's perspective, if he looked at it like, Hey, this is this new owner. I've had all this success and I'm putting this team together because if you look at the roster, he was putting the bones together of not just that Super Bowl team, but the dynasty that was about to emerge with the Teddy Brewskis, exactly. the Ted Johnsons, like all these players that have had a ton of success, that had a ton of success, the Willie McGinnises, the Ty Laws, those are all Bill Parcells guys that helped contribute. And then this new owner comes in and he says essentially like, hey, we're going to basically what he was doing, they were doing things a little bit differently. So I can see sort of the aggravation that Parcells would have. But I also look at it, too, like it's amazing to me that that was going on the week of the Super Bowl. Everybody knew that Parcells was going to the Jets the way and Drew Bledsoe sort of outlined it in the documentary how he felt at the time. But think about it. If it was this year, if Kyle Shanahan's getting ready to play the Chiefs and it's like, hey, it's basically a done deal. Kyle Shanahan's going to be the head coach of the Buffalo Bills next year or something like that. It's wild to think that that was actually going on. You know, and and one of the things that happens after that Super Bowl, if my memory serves me, is that Parcells didn't fly home with the team after that Super Bowl. And um, and it reminded me when we were sort of making this or when we were about to interview Parcells, it reminded me about how Urban Meyer didn't fly home with the team and stayed back in Ohio at one point in time. And just the just the concept of a regular season game, the coach didn't fly home with the team was like a week long news story. And so it was this interesting thing, but I don't know, look, it was really, really important for me to make sure that Parcells was able to give it from his perspective as much as anything else, because 
you know, he's such an incredible coach. And even though it didn't end when, well there, I wanted to make sure this is, I think we talked about this a little bit the last time was this idea of you can look at what happened there and say, well, I might not have agreed with the way that, that ourselves did certain things, but I also wanted to make sure the audience can look at what he did and say, well, I under, sort, of, sort of understand how he feels. It's an inexperienced uh, owner. Why shouldn't he be trusting my judgment over somebody else's uh, who doesn't have the same resume that I do, the same Super Bowl success that I do and everything? And yeah, the story is incredible. But um, like I said, in a lot of ways, it was a jumping off point to talk about this concept of team first. Yeah, that, that does make a lot of sense because Kraft probably at that point wants to send a message that it is his team, but you have this maybe the biggest ego in the NFL in terms of coaches and Parcells. So it just made for such a weird dynamic. And through it all, they still made it all the way to the Super Bowl that season, which maybe is the most amazing thing about it. But you also point out sort of the juxtaposition between Belichick, the team first thing compared to what Kraft had envisioned with what was going on with Parcells, that it was totally different things. And one of the things that sticks out to me is you guys, of course, go through that Rams Super Bowl, which is just awesome going back in time and watching that. And I remember I was young growing up when that was going on. And I remember like the Patriots getting introduced as a team and everybody talking about how cool that was. But it really did feel like the players, because a bunch of them talked about like how cool it was that they were basically the first team to do it. Like the Rams are getting their greatest show on turf offense sort of introduced. So what was, what's like the origin behind that? Was that Belichick's idea? Was that the captain's idea? Who came up with that? Do you know? I can, I actually don't remember exactly whose idea it was. And I think, and if my memory serves me, it was something that they had done earlier in the season, I think in the a game against Cincinnati, but obviously the Super Bowl is a completely different ball game, right? It's, it's, there's the, the advertising money that's involved, the, you know, the, everything is timed out, uh, you know, sort of down to the second. And so the idea of this team deciding on the biggest stage imaginable after everything that they had gone through, that they were once again going to sort of buck conventional wisdom, right? This is what the whole season was about. It was about this idea, like, you know, these people couldn't believe that Belichick was going to go with Bledsoe instead of Brady and all this stuff. And here on the biggest stage ever, they were going to do it one more time and sort of say, we're not going to do what everybody wants us to do. We're going to go out as a team and... I think what was so cool to me was that not only could we have these guys telling a story, which obviously they've told it different ways at different times from before, but that, you know, we actually found this audio within the footage where you can actually hear them saying, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And he's, and then, you know, it's just, it, it it's great to sort of not only be able to have the stories be told, but then to see them sort of figuring it out while they're in the tunnel still at that moment. And so it was, it was kind of an amazing thing for us to discover. And the other thing I thought that was amazing about that game is that Bill basically goes up to Ernie Adams to ask, what should we do at the end of the game, yeah. right? And it just kind of illustrates like how much Bill leaned on Ernie Adams. And Ernie Adams basically said, hey, you got to go for it because we look fatigued. Like the Rams are starting to come back in the second half. They had tied it up. And then the other part of that is Bloodsoe. I thought it was awesome that Bloodsoe says to Brady, like Belichick's like, just don't turn over the football and... Blood says, like, forget about that. Just go for it. I thought it was kind of because I never knew like those two sides of things that in that moment, because we always have heard the quote like John Madden, you guys have that on the dock too, or John Madden saying, hey, I don't agree with yeah. this. They should be playing for overtime. We knew about that. But I never knew that Bill got the advice from Ernie Adams and that Bloodsoe told Brady, hey, no, just go for it. So I thought that was a really cool sort of new nugget in that Super Bowl that most fans and I would imagine all fans didn't know about. 
Yeah, I think, you know, part of the thing that you can do when you when you go back and you can talk to all of these people, which was sort of all of all was our goal, which was, you know, don't make this through a specific lens. This isn't Bill's story. This isn't Tom's story. This isn't Robert's story. This is all of their collective stories. And one of the things that you get to do is to show how, you know, this wasn't just Bill sitting there making every possible decision. This was all of these people collectively getting the ball down the field through what they saw and what they heard. And I think one of the things you realize is that there was so much communication between Ernie and Bill, just like in the snow game where, where Bill radios up and says, what happened with the with the field goal that tied the game up? There was there was so much of that interaction and so much of the two of them talking that I feel like people really haven't gotten to to learn about before. So I think that that was um that was definitely special and I don't know just amazing. I you know I go back to that line from Teddy Bruschi about Drew Bledsoe. Can you imagine how hard that must have been and how much Drew must have been thinking? After the AFC Championship game, when he wins that thing, pretty much on you know, and and does throws the touchdown and everything, can you imagine the emotion that was going through his, his him, like finding out that he wasn't going to be able to lead the team and probably go win a Super Bowl if he's in there, right? But Belichick sticks with his guy, and the proves in the decision has been proven right, obviously in that game, and then every other you know for Drew not to not to to make a stink about it and to make sure that he did what was best for the team, I think is just remarkable. Yeah. And it's the second time it happened, right? He thinks he's going to get his job back months ago and then he ends up coming in for an injured Brady. They win the game. So he probably thinks, okay, now I'm definitely going to get my job back for the Super Bowl and he gets yeah. stripped away from twice, which is just amazing. And I give Belichick a lot of credit. He obviously made the right decision both times, but it is fascinating to look back at that so one of the questions I got from people that watched the document documentary is the end, you wrap up going from the first Super Bowl, you guys hit on the 03, 04, they become a dynasty. I thought it was awesome where Brady tells Ted Nugent, I'm a millionaire, like, and Brady's just becomes this huge celebrity. He's on the covers of all these magazines. But like during that stretch, they have this huge winning streak off the top of my head, I believe it's mm -hmm. 21 games. And during that stretch, they had... The Manning rivalry too, the Brady versus Manning, and then of course like Belichick versus Manning. But I would imagine the reason you guys don't go into great detail about that is because you obviously want to get to Spygate, to Flakegate, and all the stuff that'll come after Aaron Hernandez, et cetera, the second dynasty, the divorce. And I feel like the Manning Brady thing has already been told so many times that it's it's like it really wouldn't be new stuff, right? Is that kind of the thought process of kind of uh, going from the first like the having a short period to go through 03 and 04 and heading into Spygate? Yeah, I mean, certainly just, I think a lot of what you said is probably true, but there was, there's, a, there's more to it. I wish I could say that, you know, I, I sat down and, and, and mapped this out and said, this is, you know, the finished product is exactly the way that, you know, I envisioned it originally, but it wasn't that way at all. So a lot of making a thing like this is trial and error. And so, I'd love to tell you that I didn't spend multiple months cutting the O2, you know, the O2 season into the O3 season and lawyer Malloy being let go and Rodney Harrison coming in and then Tom Jackson saying the stuff about Bill and then, you know, all of these things, but we did it. And every time that we started to put those things together, we even had an entire episode at one point in time about Teddy Bruschi's stroke because mm. Teddy and his wife gave such incredible interviews about that, that it just felt like, oh my gosh, how could we not use these and things like that? But every time we did it, 
it felt in an interesting way like that entire time period, we were just, we were treading water and we were just, it was like, and, and one of the things that the players also told us over and over again was how much, it, how significant it was to be the team that took it from, you know, never having gotten the Super Bowl to the team that did, right? And obviously, yeah, the win streak was incredible. Um, and all and all of those things are incredible. But as a storyteller, you're always trying to say, like, what is the story that we're trying to tell? And what you don't ever want to get into the habit of doing is just like collecting facts to put on a timeline. I don't know. I'm sure you read ESPN and things like that. Sometimes they'll put out like a sort of the timeline of the Patriots dynasty, right? And it'll have like 1994 the, or 93, the team is bought and then this happens and this happens and this happens. It's just dates and it's, and, and that's not really storytelling. That's, that's a timeline. And so one of the things that you're always trying to do is to see what is the story that you want to tell? What is the story that your team and you wants to tell? And every time we started to do that, we would get to, let's say the, the Carolina Super Bowl, and which is arguably, in my opinion, one of the best, like in terms of the games, for me was yeah. one of my favorite Super Bowls in the in the sort of Patriot dynasty, uh, and would have been really fun to watch as a game. But it really wasn't different in a larger story sense. Like I said, when we were talking earlier, all of those scenes leading up to that Super Bowl was about team first, right? And then once we got into the Super Bowl, it was a you know there was the lines from Willie McGinnis and other people about this idea of like, you know. 9-11 and 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 we represented more than one people and even john bon jovi says tribalism to the side like it was all about the greater you know um uh sort of collective team first idea and then even leading up to Kraft's super bowl speech about it, we are all patriots right so that's what it was always about and and i think you, you know you could make an argument in a lot of ways that sometimes I, you know, we are, we are too rigid in saying it can only be about this. But one of the things that I've noticed over time in the 20 plus years that I've been making these things is that the, when, when a scene or a collection of scenes, or even an episode in this case, start to be about multiple things, it get, everything gets muddy and your point of uh, and what the story you're trying to tell doesn't keep coming through. So in this case, it felt like what we were inevitably going to get to, even if we had multiple episodes in between, was that point of what Scott Pioli talks about at the end of the three Super Bowls in four years, this idea of the addiction to winning and everything. And, it, you know, you, you just sometimes, this has happened to me so many different ways, whether it was on the Tiger movie for HBO or when we were making Amanda Knox, there were always these large chunks of the stories that you would remove and you'd be like, right, because this is the next part of this story. We've gotten to this this idea and then what's the next idea because other if that's what you always kind of want to do i had a person i used to work with who would always have a um a sticker on their computer that would say oh that's interesting and then the next sentence was what happens next because that's kind of the i that's the, the thing that you always want to have the audience sort of feeling is oh that's really interesting now what happens next right what's the new thing what's the new idea that you're going to go to so it's a great question and maybe I got a little too filmy for you, but it just, I, it, it, it sort of explains the thought process when you're in the edit room and you're trying to figure out how to tell a story like this. No, that makes a lot of sense. And 
as great as that Patriot run was, there is more interesting storylines that go along with this dynasty in terms of just the winning streak that they had, right? And speaking of that, when you flip forward to episode four, I told you last week, I thought Ty Law was an outstanding character. And then Randy Moss comes in in episode four. And I couldn't yeah. believe it. He's, he's talking about at the beginning where he get, he's going into a club and he's getting these calls and he thinks he's getting pranked by Bill Belichick. What was it like to talk to Randy? Because he seems totally different from when he's working for ESPN doing pregame shows. He seems like incredibly enthusiastic to do the documentary. How fun was it to talk to him? Like that story is amazing. He's like, Bill's like, no, this really is Bill Belichick. <laughs> it was great for multiple reasons. One, if you can, I think we interviewed Randy first. So Randy tells the story from his perspective. And then when I sit down across from Bill and I'm like, okay, so Bill, I don't know if you remember it this way at all, but just, do you remember calling Randy Moss and, and everything? And then all of a sudden you see Bill just light up and he starts telling the story from his perspective. And my favorite part about it is the idea of these two guys telling the exact same story, but in very different ways. And it, it's, it's just like so much fun because they're so excited to tell it. And yeah, Randy was just great. I mean, if you think about that, but also, um, you know, him talking about how it was like Forrest Gump when the scene in Forrest Gump, when the, when the <laughs> leg braces come off the legs and the first time he cuts a touchdown pass from, uh, from Brady all the way up through, even when that that line, when he looks dead in the camera and he says, I'm a bad motherfucker too. It's like, <laughs> there's just, the man is electric. And, and it was one of those, you know, what you always hope for is that you, for whatever reason, you find a connection with somebody that when you're talking to them across, when you're filming them, but you just never know. And Randy was one of those people who's just so easy to talk to and was just so engaging and like, it, it, you know, not only all of that stuff, but then when you when you get to that last catch in the Super Bowl, and you can see he says it, you know, it, I can't remember his exact words, but it, something about like it haunts me. I, I I nipped it. I almost had it, and it still is something he thinks about after everything he's accomplished. And you know, not only on the football field, but in broadcasting, it's like this is the thing that still keeps him up at night. You know, and that's just that's just incredible to me. Well, it's a great sort of illustration at the beginning when you said that about the Forrest Gump thing, because as Patriots fans, they hid Randy Moss in the preseason. So we didn't see him at all in the preseason. Then all of a sudden, and even Randy said in the documentary, he's like, we didn't go full speed yet. And then the first game against the Jets, it's like, whoa. And McDaniels even says, he's like, we knew that at that point we had something special. But then like during that time, we have the whole Spygate scandal. I thought yeah. you guys did an outstanding job. You had the security guy that, Basically, he was working undercover as like in the mafia at one point, and then he goes over to the Meadowlands and he's working in the in the jet situation and or for the jets or for the Meadowlands, whatever the I think it was called the Meadowlands at the time. I forget. Yeah. But then you also had Scott Pioli talk because Eric Mangini is the one that obviously told them that this was going on. Scott Pioli is then talking about the Patriots as a family, like almost as like the Patriots are the mafia. Like when he's talking about this, you left the family. So why did you guys feel it was so important? Because I thought it was great, like sort of how this, how they got the tape and then of course, destroying the tape. I mean, what was the most fascinating thing that you found from the whole Spygate situation? Because it's, it feels like to me, Kraft's still mad at Bill about it. Kraft says like, what percentage did this give us to win? And Bill's like, you know, 1% or whatever. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know about, I don't know how mad he is still about it. I, I you know, that's, that's a question for him probably more than anything else, but Again, we go back to these larger themes. If episode four or if episode three was about team first, 
you talk about the security guy who was under the, the the police officer who was undercover with the mob. The thing that he talks about is betrayal, right? So in a lot of ways, the first you know twenty minutes of episode four is about the theme of betrayal. It starts out with that story, but then we get to the Mangini thing and 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 sort of the betrayal that was felt for Mangini and the Jets, sort of turning by Mangini turning on the Patriots and sort of speaking about what he knew. And that was the larger theme that we were really trying to focus on for the first part of that story. And that's why when, you know, Scott comes back in, he talks about that. Like he he talks about the leaving the family. And and of course, yes, that ties in again to the idea of this guy who was within the because when Scott said that, I just thought, oh my gosh, this is one of the greatest lines I've ever heard somebody say. Like, I have to find, you know, like, how are we going to include this? And then all of a sudden, uh, one of the producers on the show, Vin D'Anton, he comes up and he says, um, hey, I don't know if you'd be interested, but a friend of a friend of a friend or something like that is the guy who was the person who actually confiscated this thing. And then we get him in the chair and he starts talking about being undercover and the feeling of betrayal and all of the stuff. And you're just thinking, oh my gosh, this is starting to tie into what, you know, Scott said and da 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 and all this stuff. And that's how you form these idea of a theme around this. And then what was really important to me in this episode was obviously you could do an episode on Spygate where you really sort of dunk on the Patriots, right? You could do the sort of like shame on you episode, like how dare you do this thing? But obviously that's not, to me, that's not good storytelling because of course there's nuance and complexity to anything, right? The idea, the first thing that Ernie says when he sits down in the chair is this idea that other people were doing it too. And he, and he sort of knows that, right? This is not, nothing in this story is black and white. Nothing is right or wrong, good and evil. This is, well, it's in, it, and then it gets into this larger question as we go down to the episode, at, towards the end of the episode of like, you know, how were the Patriots viewed at this time? They had become the evil empire. And so maybe is that why, you know, Spygate became a story? Is it because of that? Is it because they had a target on their back because they'd won too much? Is this something that was happening everywhere across the league? It was, but it was also clearly against the rules. And that's the other thing about that footage with Bill talking to Armin Kate and the journalist is, you know, I think for a lot of people, this is probably the first time that they've ever heard Bill actually answer the question and say, yeah, we made a mistake. It was wrong. And it's sort of fessing up to Spygate for the first time. I mean, unless you were watching the raw interview when it came out, that only exists sort of on some fuzzy, you know, thing on the internet that you can barely even make out the faces and everything. And so I think we just wanted to make the entire thing as complex as possible so that, you know, it wasn't like, certainly we weren't giving the Patriots a pass on this, but we also wanted to make sure that people understood this is something that was happening probably throughout the league. And it's just, this is the, this is the Patriots got caught and people who want to do a deep dive into it will see that if I'm not mistaken, I believe that Mangini and the Jets were caught doing this, you know, at Gillette the year before, right? So again, it's all complicated and it's something that, you know, um, you can do a much, much deeper dive on. But part of the thing that made this season so interesting and is that, you know, there are probably a lot of teams that when a scandal like this broke around the team, the team would fall apart at the seams and the whole season would be over. But 
one of the, the patterns that I kept noticing with the Patriots as I talked to these guys was the idea that when their backs were actually up against the wall, right, not manufactured sort of, you know, there's all, um, Bill Simmons, the, the head of your, the ringer and everything, all this talks about this idea of, um, uh, team, nothing, no, nothing gets a team going, like sort of nobody believes in us or something like that. Right. He always talks about this, but, and I think a lot of times coaches and players manufacture that idea out of thin air, but in this case and in others throughout the story of the dynasty, when the Patriots backs were actually up against the wall, that's when they did their best work. And that's when they came together in an interesting way. So the thing that I wanted to capture for the other, you know, the two thirds of the episode that remained was the idea of the, the locker room, probably as Teddy Bruschi says, had even mixed emotions about how they felt when the story came out. But Teddy sort of says, Bill was ours. And how dare anybody say anything that would invalidate everything we've accomplished. And then it becomes the, the revenge tour, right? And, and, and there's sort of two pods in, in that. Um, and again, it gets back to this concept of things can, you have to figure out what is the scene talking about and what is the next scene talking about. And Dan Kohler, who is the lead editor on the series, really got into this part with this episode um, where there is one part of this, which is about the undefeated season, right? And can they go 16 and 0 and you see them with another one bites the dust and all of this stuff. But there's another part of this, which is about vengeance. And those two things at different points in times were sort of blended together, but they never really made any sense. And when we separated them and said, one is about them going and sort of saying F you to everybody in the league, that's one chapter. And the next chapter is, can they actually go do this thing and pull it off and, you know, go 16 and 0 to, um, you know, eventually, unfortunately, you know, 18 and 0 and then unfortunately 18 and 1, depending on who you ask. Yeah, well, and I love too when Brewski's saying, I knew Bill was still mad because the offense kept scoring points. <laughs> they'd be up yeah. like 30 points and they'd still be throwing. All right, that is Matt Hamachek, the director of the Dynasty. Matt, thank you so much for the time. Look forward to chatting again next week. Yeah, thanks for talking. Talk to you soon. Bet the NBA with a no-sweat same-game parlay from FanDuel every Thursday with TNT Thursdays. It doesn't matter if you're new to FanDuel or already have an account. You'll get bonus bets back if your same-game parlay doesn't win on any NBA on TNT game. NBA same-game parlays are the perfect way to combine your bets for a chance to score a bigger payday. All right, and I'm looking at the Warriors in New York to take on that Knicks team that is still banged up. I like Steph Curry and company to win in New York and the Nuggets at home to take on the Heat in a finals rematch. I'll take the Nuggets. The Joker is playing at an insane level right now, so I'll take the Nuggets to beat the Heat. However you want to play, just head on over to FanDuel.com Pike to bet the NBA with a no-sweat same-game parlay with TNT Thursdays. That's FanDuel.com Pike. Make every moment more with FanDuel, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. Must be 21 plus and president select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com slash RG. Minimum three-leg parlay required. Refund issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets, which expire seven days after receipt. Max refund $5 unless otherwise specified. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Matt Hamachek. Really enjoyed talking with him again on the first now four episodes we've talked about in the dynasty just the whole spygate compared to the 2007 season what was going on the patriots trying for the perfect season of course we all know the history of that but during that time having 
the Spygate situation and the Patriots, as Matt was talking about, they had this mentality of us versus the world. And you could tell that they just wanted to destroy every team. I did also think it was interesting in the documentary when we get to Super Bowl Sunday or Super Bowl weekend, I should say, there's all this drama going on with the Patriots leading up to then because you have Brady that, of course, is in a walking boot. He's in New York hanging out with Giselle. So that's get that gets photographed because of the fame of Brady at that particular point in time, right? Still one of the most famous athletes in the country. But at that time, he's dating Giselle, who then, of course, he would marry. And so you have that. And then after this, you get the report from the Herald, John Tomasi, uh, John Tomasi, rather, that the Patriots were filming the Rams walkthrough. And then he has. So then on all these shows, you have all these talking heads that are like calling out the Patriots, calling them cheaters and all this stuff like going back because they had already had the Spygate thing earlier in the season. So Then they're all going in talking about the situation in terms of. The Patriots did this, like the the whole thing is tainted. The whole dynasty is tainted, blah, blah, blah. And then Tomasi has to take back his story, which became a whole thing because the whole day people are talking about this, the whole lead up to the Super Bowl, people are talking about it. And you could tell how pissed Jonathan Kraft was about this, saying that the story just was not true. And he threatened, he said, if I wanted to buy the paper, it was worth it. I would have bought the paper at that point in time. They're calling up the Herald. So it's just a complete mess for a story that was taken back. Like that whole time, the whole drama with that team is just crazy to think about. That 07 Super Bowl, it's obviously, I guess technically it was in 08, but that's the worst loss we've had as Boston sports fans, at least of my generation. I guess for some Red Sox fans in 86, that would be a big one. But since then, the Red Sox have won a bunch of Super Bowls. I mean, won a bunch of World Series. And I get it. The Patriots have won Super Bowls. They won before then. But that was inarguably going to be the greatest football team in the history of of the NFL, and unfortunately you don't have that because the loss to Eli Manning and company, but man, the whole Ernie Adams, I love in the documentary how he says, I'm really not going to get into the video thing. I'm taking some of that to the grave, but you kind of did in the Armin Gatayan interview, Belichick admitted that he was wrong for doing it, but I really, like when you think about what was going on at that time, teams trying to film teams and all this, it was basically the location of where they were, right, in terms of when the hammer really came down. But it's amazing to me to see how they rallied around that. And obviously, a large portion of that is the fact that you have the greatest quarterback of all time, one of the top three receivers, four receivers, however you want to sort of put Randy Moss in the conversation. Obviously, everything starts after Jerry Rice, and Randy Moss is right there. I mean, there's other guys you could argue, but you could argue he's the second greatest receiver in the history of the NFL. And then you have Welker, and everything just sort of comes together perfectly for that team until, of course... The Giants game, but those episodes are really good. It only gets better too. Like the documentary, I feel like it continues to get better as it goes along. So we'll chat with Matt about episodes five and six next week. A couple of Patriots thoughts I wanted to get to here. So Mike Reese had the note from Daniel Jeremiah on uh, the Jeremiah conference call. Of course, Daniel Jeremiah, great draft analyst for the NFL Network. He said that he was referencing sort of how Elliot Wolf came up through the Green Bay system and. One of the things that Jeremiah pointed out in the conference call is that they value receivers with dynamic yards after catch ability, and that could also add value as kick returners. So this is interesting to me for a couple of reasons here when we're thinking about Elliott Wolf now in charge of the Patriots. So first of all, let's go back to last year and who the Patriots selected in the draft in the sixth round. Demario Douglas, who of course was at the very least going to be involved in some capacity in the kick return, punt return game. They had that vision. But remember, 
Elliot Wolf has been the director of scouting since 2022. So it sort of points to the fact that basically when Daniel Jeremiah says they're looking for yards after the catch guy from receivers and guys that can, of course, be part of the return game as well. And this what sort of it points out kind of like, okay, this is what they saw in Demario Douglas. And if you look at Douglas last year as a rookie, seven yak yards per reception that ranked eighth in the NFL among receivers and tight ends. So that skill was on display early, early on. So that feels like, obviously, Elliot Wolf had his fingerprints all over that selection, right? And I went back sort of through the history of Wolf with the Packers. Now, he was never the main guy in charge. In fact, that's why he eventually left Green Bay to go to Cleveland to join up with John Dorsey and company. But if you think about his time there, he started in 04. And if you look at sort of the picks that the Packers had during that time, 2006, second round, they take Greg Jennings. 2008, and I'm talking about just receivers here, 2008, second round, Jordy Nelson. 2011, second round, Randall Cobb. 2014, second round, Devontae Adams. So Mike Reese also had in his story, just keep those receivers in mind here. He had in his story, he talked with Andrew Brandt, who used to work for Green Bay. He said, quote, I'm a big fan of Elliot. Every now and then I'd walk by his office and ask him what he was looking at. And one time in 2006, I remember he said, I want to show you someone we're going to take this kid in the second round tomorrow. Greg Jennings, a receiver from Western Michigan. And I was like, really? We're going to take a kid from Western Michigan in the second round? And Elliot just kept saying he hopes he wouldn't go before then. So <laughs> that's just amazing drafting and sort of like the vision that Elliot Wolf has from his receivers, guys that can do things after the catch. So the reason I bring this up with the receivers is the Packers found during the time that Elliot Wolf was there. And like I said, he wasn't always the main guy. He was never the actual main guy, but he worked his way up pretty high within that organization. But the reason I bring it up is the Packers found four really good receivers in the second round, and they never took a first-round receiver. Remember at times, this is like a critique of the Packers. Like, oh, they never drafted Aaron Rodgers a first-round receiver. It's like, well, they had Jordy Nelson, Greg Jennings, and Devontae Adams. Would you be happy if one of those guys went in the first round? Like, they got the receivers right, right? So I always thought that was a weird sort of defense of Rodgers. Obviously, nowadays, like, everybody just, nobody likes Rodgers at this point. But before then, everybody was defending Rodgers. And that, that was like a complaint about the Packers organization. It's like they draft guys that are good. I don't, I don't understand what the complaint is. But anyway, so I was just thinking about this in terms of all the success that the Packers had drafting receivers in the second round and even later than that. This whole idea of when we're looking at the Patriots with this number three overall pick, the idea of taking Marvin Harrison Jr. third, I just don't see it, right? Because if you look at this and you look at the leading receivers in the NFL, so first of all, Elliot Wolf's background with the Packers and quite frankly, what they just did with the sixth round pick in Demario Douglas. I'm not saying this guy is going to be one of the best receivers in the NFL, but he's definitely a really good NFL receiver. He's going to be a contributor for years to come. But if you look at last year, the top 10 receivers in terms of yards last season. Tyreek Hill went in the fifth round. And of course, there was a ton of baggage with Tyreek Hill. That's part of it. CeeDee Lamb was a first round guy. St. Brown was a fourth round guy. Nakua was a fifth round guy. A.J. Brown, a second round guy. D.J. Moore, a first round guy. Brennan Ayuk, a first round guy. Collins, a third round guy. Nico Collins from the Texans. Mike Evans, a first round guy. So if you look at that, just four of those receivers in the top 10 were first round receivers. So that means 60% of the top 60% of the 
top 10 receiving guys in terms of yards last year were not first round picks. So the reason I point that out, and look, I understand some guys are dealing with injuries, the Justin Jeffersons of the world, right? Like, I, I understand that. But the fact that Wolf in Green Bay was part of a group that found three really foundational receivers when we're talking about Jennings, Jordy Nelson, and Devontae Adams, and another really good receiver in Randall Cobb, I just don't see them, if they're not taking a quarterback with a third overall pick, I don't see them taking Marvin Harrison Jr. Because I think what... Elliot Wolf will convince himself as I can find more receivers later on in the draft. Maybe they're not as good as Marvin Harrison Jr., but that's not sort of the value proposition there. So I think anything, if they stay at three and they don't take a quarterback, I believe it'll be a tackle. I believe they'll take Joe Alt from Notre Dame or something along those lines. I don't see them taking a receiver just based on the resume of Elliot Wolf and his background. So I think they would play the value game there rather than the receiver. Like, I think that if they don't take a quarterback third, I don't think they'll make the pick. I think they'll trade down because of where the roster is at right now and say, hey, let's acquire a bunch of assets for the future, even if they have on the big board Marvin Harrison Jr., the number one player. I just don't think they'll take him with the third overall pick. I think they'll look at this from a long-term game and say, hey, let's get extra draft picks and let's compile a better roster than just taking Marvin Harrison Jr. And as crazy as this sounds, I want the quarterback I've told you a million times, I want them to take a quarterback at number three. But it also does in some sense, like I could understand them if they don't love, say, hypothetically, if they don't love Jaden Daniels and he's the quarterback on the board, I could see them and it does make sense to trade back if that's the case, if you don't love Jaden Daniels. Now, like I said, I would take Jaden Daniels with the third overall pick. But to me, it does sort of make sense as much as I love Marvin Harrison Jr. that if you're not sitting there and you're not taking the quarterback, that somebody's going to say, wait, Jaden Daniels is there. The Patriots don't want Jaden Daniels. I'm going to give you a shit ton of stuff to move up. And maybe you don't even move that far down. Like maybe there's a chance you could still get Marvin Harrison Jr. depending on what team comes up and gets the quarterback. Like that is, I guess it would be a long shot, but it would be at least sort of still in the realm of possibility. But I, I would not, if the Patriots decide, and I would disagree with this logic, let me be abundantly clear about that. If the Patriots decide we're not taking Jaden Daniels with the third overall pick, I wouldn't be upset if they traded back because obviously this roster, when we look at it right now, there's still a lot of issues there. The one other thing I'll say is in terms of just Jaden Daniels and whether or not the Patriots and in particular Elliot Wolf are going to like him. So if you look at sort of the history of Elliot Wolf throughout his Green Bay, te- Green Bay tenure, They drafted Rodgers in 05 when that's a value pick, right? Because he was the best quarterback on the, he was the best player on the board. He dropped all the way into the 20s. They had Brett Favre. They said, hey, let's take Aaron Rodgers here. Aaron Rodgers easily should have gone before then, right? And then Matt Flynn, they drafted him as a backup at one point, but traditional sort of pocket passer. Obviously, Rodgers could extend plays. But then when he went to Cleveland, now they did have a really good pick in the second round when he was working under John Dorsey. They picked Nick Chubb in the second round, which is like great value running back position. You could argue before the injury, best running back in the NFL last season. I mean, I would take McCaffrey, but it's not like a crazy take if you said last year Nick Chubb was the best running back in the NFL, right? So that was a good pick. But if you look at their number one pick and look, like I said, he's not the head decision maker in these situations, but they took Baker Mayfield and that's the draft that Josh Allen went in. Remember, Sam Darnold went third. But sort of the story at the time was that the quarterback that the Browns liked the most 
was Josh Allen. Now, they ended up going with Baker Mayfield because my hunch is they thought it was a safer pick, right? Coming out of the big program at Oklahoma, had won the Heisman Trophy, very accurate guy. But if they could go back in time, obviously they would take Josh Allen with that pick. So I do wonder if that sort of alters his thinking with the quarterback position. And remember, the Patriots, the one quarterback they drafted with in 2022 was Zappi. I mean, obviously 2021 Mac, but when Elliott Wolf was sort of elevated with his role at the Patriots, they did draft Zappi in 2022. Not a high upside at all, traditional type of guy. So that's why I do wonder about the Jaden Daniels pick, because if you look at the history of the quarterbacks that Elliott Wolf has been around, it's been those traditional sort of pocket passers. So the Jaden Daniels question is going to be fascinating, because I do think that, say hypothetically, if Washington were to take Jaden Daniels, and I think they're going to take Drake May. I know we're a while away from the draft, but if they did say take Jaden Daniels, I do think the Patriots would throw in the card really quick for Drake May because that is sort of a guy that has this massive arm, can play from the pocket, and Jaden Daniels can too, but I think the perception of Drake May is that he was this guy right away at North Carolina, had a ton of success. It took Jaden Daniels a while to get going, and I think when you look at it, in terms of just that traditional pocket guy that Elliot Wolf's been around in the past. And even too, like Drake may can extend plays sort of like Aaron Rodgers could. And of course, Elliot Wolf had a ton of success. The Packers had a ton of success with Aaron Rodgers, despite never really winning the big game outside of that one Super Bowl. It felt like they choked year after year after year. I do think the Patriots would be quickly putting up the card for May if he fell to three. Okay. So some other Patriots notes. We also found out they have the second most cap space in the league, which we kind of knew about but it's going to be north of $80 million. And some of the notes on that in terms of what the Patriots are going to do with that, our buddy Andrew Callahan had the reporting that negotiations between the Patriots and Kendrick Bourne have not advanced since the team approached his camp about re-signing shortly after Bourne tore his ACL in the end of October. So Callahan also had that Bourne was at the facility on Thursday and Friday and he's expected to be ready for the start of next season. Remember, Callahan came on the pod and said, basically, it's a clean tear, so it's easier to come back from. So born last season, 50.8 receiving yards per game, 10 more yards than any other Patriot, 4.6 receptions per game, a full reception more than any other Patriot. And hearing this about Elliot Wolf that I was just pointing out, the emphasis on Yak, it makes total sense that they would bring him back. If you look at the other receivers, Parker last in separation, Thornton, and I hope I'm wrong about this, he may just end up being a bust. You would like guys that are quarterback friendly that can get open and create after the catch. And you already have Douglas, of course, going into year two. Bourne would make a lot of sense. And some of the projections are not crazy. Now, we'll see, like Pro Football Focus right now has the projection of two for 14. I think that's sort of low for Kendrick Bourne. Maybe they're factoring in him coming back from a torn ACL. But I'm just not in the business right now of losing good players that you have. Because as we alluded to, the Patriots roster is not good right now. If Kendrick Bourne has an interest in coming back here, and I think there will be more suitors. Like, I am i don't think that number is correct that Pro Football Focus has, but I think there's going to be contenders that look at Kendrick Bourne. Like, the Chiefs are a team that I think makes a lot of sense for Kendrick Bourne that is quarterback-friendly. They like the Yak guys. Rache Rice is one of the better guys already in the NFL in terms of the Yak ability. Like, Kendrick Bourne would make a lot of sense in that situation. Dallas could use another receiver, right? So you just start to look at this and like even a team, and I know they don't have a lot of cap space, the Chargers, they have weapons, but they're all similar. Like they need a guy and they have Keenan Allen, but putting another guy like Kendrick Bourne in there to go along with Keenan Allen, Keenan Allen, Mike Williams, like that, 
that would make a lot of sense. My point just with Kendrick Bourne, I don't want to go through the list of all the teams that should be interested. I think there is going to be interest. And if I was Elliot Wolf, I would bring him back because I would look at it and say, okay, at least we're starting from a place where I know Demario Douglas is good and I know Kendrick Bourne is good. Now, we still don't have that alpha receiver, but at least we have two guys and you're starting in a better spot, I would argue, than last year. Right when you had all these questions about Juju's health, I was never a fan of Devontae Parker. At that point, we didn't know what Demario Douglas was going to be, and he was in the doghouse after the fumble. You had Kendrick Bourne, but you had a lot of questions. And I would feel pretty good about those two guys in the receiving core. Obviously, you still need to add. So I would be doing everything I can to bring Kendrick Bourne back. Okay, Michael Awenyu, Pro Football Focus, has his projection at 4 for 58, and he just fired his agents. PFF has him ranked as the 25th best free agent. It looks like he's going to get paid. And it looks like he's going to go to the highest bidder. This is a guy that has been not making a lot of money in NFL terms throughout his NFL career. I just don't think the Patriots are going to pay for him. I think he's going to go to a team. And we've seen teams across the league are desperate for linemen. And on when you is versatile, right? He's probably better at guard than he is tackle. But tackle, he's going to make more money. So I don't think he's going to be back. I think he's going to get a big payday elsewhere. Then you look at the safety position, Kyle Duggar, who of course is a free agent as well. PFF ranked Jabril Peppers last year as their fifth ranked safety. Peppers had an outstanding season. Of course, Elliot Wolf had familiarity with him from his days with the Browns. You look at Duggar, played 97% of the snaps last year. Peppers about 84%. And Phillips, who was sort of aging, 12%. So you would hope they would bring Duggar back because he's sort of one of the leaders, and I don't think it's going to be a crazy contract to bring Duggar back based on the safety market. So I would hope that Duggar's back. Like if I was projecting and predicting who's going to be back the most likely, I would say Duggar one, Bourne two, on Wenyu three, because on Wenyu is going to get the biggest payday out of this group. I would like at least Duggar and Bourne to be back. Obviously, I would like all three of them because as I alluded to like this Patriots team they need talent you can't just be losing good players and it feels these are three good players I would like the Patriots to at least keep two of these three guys because you're trying to at least compete and these these three guys are three of your best players on the football team right like you throw Ramondre Stevenson into the conversation Gonzalez coming back from the injury Judon his situation going forward like it Barmore had an outstanding season, but like these are three of your better players. Like, and I would like these guys to be around. Okay. Real quickly, one note on the Celtics. I just, if you haven't listened to Bill's pod, I would encourage you to do so because him and Rosillo did a whole thing on the Celtics and Bill had a great nugget in there. So during the All-Star game, Jason Tatum went up to Doc Rivers and I hadn't heard this before, Bill. I think Bill's the first person that had this, obviously, that Tatum told Doc Rivers to give Jalen his minutes. Because remember, Jalen was sort of in the MVP conversation. It was Dame, it was Halliburton. I guess if you want to throw a West guy out there, it would have been Carl Anthony Towns, but they weren't going to give it to a guy on the losing team. But Jalen had a chance. Like Jalen was going off in that game and Tatum telling Doc to put Jalen in because he wanted Jalen to an MVP. It just sort of tells you what type of teammate Tatum is and sort of the relationship that these two guys have. Like, I do think there really is, and Bill talked about it on his pod too, but there really is a bond between these guys because their sort of on-court chemistry and on-court fit has been questioned for so many years here, not just locally, but nationally as well. I mean, we're talking about Perk last season saying you have to break up these guys. Time after time, people have said you have to break up these two guys, and we've entertained it before in the past, certainly, 
But the fact that I think there is sort of this bond between Jalen and Jason Tatum where they're like, everybody doubts us. They say we should be broken up. Remember, after the Miami series two years ago when the Celtics won Game 7 in Miami, they're yelling at each other. They said to break us up. They said to break us up. So I do think there is sort of this relationship that these two guys have where they want to get this done together to sort of prove everybody wrong. And Tatum doing that to get Jalen an all-star game MVP or at least try to, I thought that's pretty cool. One other note on Jalen, one area he's really improved this season, I think it bodes well for the postseason. If you look at Jalen on fadeaways this season, and I've said this when I'm watching games to whoever I'm watching games with, like his fadeaway sometimes it doesn't even feel like it hits the net. It just goes like right through the basket. He's got the perfect sort of arc on it. So on fadeaways this year, He's 49 of 88. That's 55.7%. That's an insane number for fadeaways. Last year, that number for Jalen, he was 41 of 91, 45.1%. So he's obviously on track to take a lot more this year. And the percentage is up more than 10 percentage points, right? I mean, almost 10 and a half percentage points, really. So when you look at it from that perspective, that's like we talk about the weapons that the Celtics team has when it gets to the postseason. Jalen's always been sort of a tough shot maker. Sometimes you question the shot selection but that's an important number that Jalen can get to that shot and obviously you can get to the fadeaway anytime you want but the fact that he's hitting it at a high rate very good to see all right one other note so this is just Red Sox related Jordan Montgomery the Red Sox had a zoom meeting with Montgomery and this now like we're getting more of the details this happened before spring training the story just came out and Alex Cora confirmed it when he was asked about it today he said yeah it's true we talked with him So they've been keeping in touch with Jordan Montgomery. I don't want to get too excited one way or the other with this Montgomery thing because I feel like, hey, they are in on him, then they're not in him. Oh yeah, they are in on him. So it's, I just don't want to get too excited because I do feel like when I've talked about this a million times with this Red Sox team, they just need to pencil somebody in at the front end of the rotation. Montgomery would be that. And just the consistency of Montgomery. He's entering his 31-year-old season, so it's not like, He's super old or anything along those lines. And if you look at his numbers since the start of 2022, 367 innings, 13th among starters, seven wins above replacement, 14th, his FIP, 359, 15th, his ERA, 334, 14th, home runs per nine innings, 0.96, 12th. So he doesn't give up the long ball, doesn't walk guys either, a 5.6% walk rate, 10th. That's why he throws all these innings. Because he's not getting hammered, he's not giving him home runs, and he's not walking anybody. Not a big strikeout guy, but he's not going to walk anybody. He's going to get ground balls. 45.3% ground ball rate over the last two years. That's 11th best in baseball. The launch angle, 10.9 degrees, the ninth best in baseball. And the hard hit rate, the ball's off the bat, 95 plus miles an hour, 37.6%, which is 11th. So guys aren't making loud contact. They're hitting balls on the ground. He's not walking guys. This is how you get six, seven innings out of your starter every fifth day. And this would be just such a huge addition to this Red Sox team. And I know you could say, well, how many years is he going to want and all this different type of stuff. And I get it. Like I get there's question marks in terms of the long-term contract. We'll see where this thing goes with Scott Boris. I was at least somewhat enthusiastic that the Red Sox were talking to him again. But like I said, I don't, I don't want to be like, I don't want to get myself worked up and psyched up to the point where I envision this happening because then I'm just going to be pissed when it doesn't happen. So what I'm going to do based on what the Red Sox have done over the past couple of off seasons, I'm just going to leave this out here. 
I'm gonna. I'm not gonna assume it's gonna happen or anything along those lines. Even though it makes the perfect sense, just bring in Jordan Montgomery, put him at the front end of your rotation. Then you got Montgomery, Pavetta, Bayo, Crawford. You're feeling better about this thing, right? We'll see. And Giolito, of course. But I'm not holding my breath. I'm excited, but I'm trying not to be excited. I know I'm making no sense right now, but I'm just. I can't do it anymore with sort of the anticipation of the moves that the Red Sox could or could not make. So. We'll see what happens. All right, coming up next, we'll bring in producer extraordinaire, Jamie McClellan. Welcome back into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Joining us now, it is producer extraordinaire, Jamie McClellan. Jamie, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm chilling, Brian. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So I hear we got a couple of emails, so let's get to one. Offthepike at gmail.com is that email address. What do we got? Uh, We got one from Miles. He's got a bone to pick with uh, your draft last week with Fitzy. He's writing kind of facetiously, but he says, After the seventh pick in the draft, the cameras kept cutting to Rodney Harrison sitting alone in the green room with his head in his hands. You two couldn't even mention him. Saying, I'm not saying he's a top 10 lock, but he deserved to at least be mentioned as an honorable mention, which I think is fair. Yeah, Rodney's one of my favorite Patriots of all time. He's in the conversation for the my favorite Patriot after Brady. I mean, Gronk's in the conversation, Edelman's in the conversation, mm-hmm. and... I just love the way that Rodney played. And it was really a bold move by Bill to get rid of Lawyer Malloy, trade him, then bring in Rodney Harrison. And I remember in the Man in the Arena, the documentary that Tom did, yeah. how Rodney sort of introduced himself to the team. He just jacked up Troy Brown at practice. Everyone's like, what the hell is this guy doing? But I loved Rodney, certainly. And I think the only thing you could say, and you should be in the Hall of Fame, by the way. I'll stick by that. I mean, he's a better player than John Lynch. But if we're talking about... Okay, yeah, honorable mention nominee, sure. It's just so many other Patriots deserve credit too, right? Like when you think about Richard Seymour, like Richard Seymour is more deserving mm-hmm. of that nod than Rodney Harrison. Willie McGinnis has the most sacks yep. in the playoffs in NFL history. Mm-hmm. Brewski was the leader of that group, even though Rodney Harrison's a better player than Brewski, but Brewski was there for all three Super Bowls. I just think there's other guys that, even Wilfork, I think Fitzy brought up Wilfork in terms of he was on the 04 team and the 14 team, so he deserves a ton of credit as well, and just the longevity, because Rodney came here in, what, 03? So he just, he didn't have, mm-hmm. he didn't have the longevity that a lot of these other guys had. I love Rodney, though. Rodney was an awesome player. I hate that the helmet catch was on him. You think you do? Oh, you mean he was, he was guarding him, but you don't, are you saying Yeah, he was on him. him. Well, yeah. Yeah, it was on yeah. him, like, you know, oh, kind of sucks. David Tyree, kind of sucks that it had happened to, Rodney Harrison. But yeah, Rodney definitely deserves a lot of credit for what he was able to do. And that was Bill. Bill loved him, man. Bill loved Rodney Harrison. I think Rodney still, I think he's really good on TV too. You mentioned it with Hamachuk. I mean, everyone's talking about this uh, win streak, uh, 03 to 04 win streak, which I was aware of, but kind of it's been brought back into the attention. And it is fair to say that he was probably, you know, the guy on the defense, at least during, you know, what you could argue is like the height of the Patriots dynasty, at least the first half. So I guess that's worth noting. Yeah, well, and the other thing is, I, re- I remember that too. It was it was Halloween against the Pittsburgh Steelers when it ended. Again, uh, young yeah. Ben Roethlisberger, and then the Patriots beat the Steelers eventually in that AFC Championship game that year. But if you're going to throw Rodney in there, like, honestly, as much as I love Rodney, Devin McCourty's a better nomination than Rodney. Because Longevity-wise, Devin, so for sure. Devin McCourty played for more than a decade, and he played on three Super Bowl teams. 
So, like, if you're going to throw Rodney into the mix, even if you think Rodney's a better player than Devin McCourty, yeah. Devin McCourty deserves sort of recognition when it comes to it as well, just because of how long that he played. I mean, if you look at the second dynasty, he's the best defensive player in terms of the long term of it. Like, Revis was great in 14, and if you look at it in terms of Gilmore, he won a defensive player of the year, right? But yeah. he came in in 17, and then he's here for 18... 19 right so he's not here that long so when you look at it from that perspective like in terms of throughout the history of that dynasty now the one other guy you could throw out is Dante Hightower Hightower ended up missing a lot of games though throughout that stretch he was obviously awesome in the postseason but if you look at it in terms of not the peak because Revis had a better season you could even argue like one of Chandler Jones's years was phenomenal with the Patriots as well but if you're talking about just in terms of the longevity throughout that run McCourty was there most consistent defensive player in that stretch for sure yeah totally i agree with you i mean i liked him i guess chung i think chung made the all dynasty team or whatever but mccordy was a better player for sure yeah chung um, left and came back he we know often Eagles. that happened considering people just need a break maybe for belichick for a year or two and then they miss him well that one bill said it was his fault he said he didn't coach him correctly so for i sure. that, that that was like bill said it was on him and he was way better when he came back which is sort of an interesting dynamic that he was way better the second time around than he was the first time around. But yeah, mm. I mean, Rodney's a fair one to throw out there, but I, I yeah. think there's like, he'd be, he'd be further down on my list, but yeah, certainly if we're going to talk about honorable mentions, you can, you can throw them out there. But like we, some of the guys that weren't on there, Edelman is a Super Bowl hero, right? He had one of the greatest catches in the history of the Super Bowl. He's also a Super Bowl MVP and he didn't make yep. the list. Even if Rodney's a better safety than Edelman was, a receiver Edelman had all these huge moments even going back to 2014 the touchdown that he threw to Danny Amendola against the Ravens that's a huge yeah. play right I mean so I, I if you're talking about like Patriots guys I wouldn't put Rodney near the top of the list in terms of the next guys that should have been on yeah that's fair even Deion Branch um, Deion Branch was a Super Bowl MVP MVP I know he was yeah, great in some Deion, playoff Deion Branch was awesome and he left and came mm-hmm. back too um Brian, can I mention something you were talking about with the contracts with the Patriots? Sure. So this, I, I, I hear you that anyone who's going to get paid a ton of money. Don't you think we need to invest on the line? Like we got like, I think Andrew's like the only guy on a second contract. Like you got to pay some of these dudes on the line. Our line was so porous. I do. I just think that there's going to be a huge market for on when you, and yeah. it already sort of feels like he's planning his exit. Yeah. With the new agents and stuff like that. Definitely planning on getting a payday. Well, I don't even know if he's going to get an agent. Oh, yeah, I guess that's it. I saw Caleb Williams isn't getting an agent, so the trend because with he, Lamar and stuff. Yeah, I think there's a certain amount of time you got to wait before you can hire a new agent to begin huh. with. He may just go into this process by himself, which, I mean, I guess it worked for Lamar, right? Lamar got his big it Took him a while, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it would have been quicker if Lamar had an agent, but at the end of it, he got a pretty good deal. For sure, for sure. Well, I hope he sticks around. He's good, obviously. Yeah, I do too. He's their best lineman. Unequivocally, yeah. he's their best lineman that can play guard, that can play tackle. It, it would be it, like the line already stinks. And if you lose him, I mean, you're hoping for internal development from some of the young guys that showed at least some signs last season, right? Some of the rookies. But it would be nice to have on when you there and just feel good about that position for the next four to five years. I just feel like he's going to get a lot of different offers across the league. And I think he'll end up signing elsewhere. Yeah. I hope Duggar's back because he's sort of been a leader of this team but 
I, I if if you're gonna ask me to predict, I would as I said, like I'd like all three to be back. That's fair. But I would I would predict that two of the three are gone. I would predict that Duggar's back and that when you and Bourne sign elsewhere. Yeah, I guess we'll see. I'm just I'm curious to see if their philosophy I mean, like you said, Wolf's been in the building uh for a few years now so it's not exactly like it's a completely new reset but i i'd like to hope things might change a bit in terms of how they approach approach free agents now that bill's out of the room but we shall see yeah i mean they have all this money now they have over 80 million dollars in salary cap space they're gonna have to spend a certain amount of that and they almost have to be aggressive i saw though i think i saw though the salary cap's going up 30 million dollars across the board so it's like it's a bit like inflation right so we'll see uh, you know, if everyone's spending or if everyone's just getting paid more. I'm, I, I know they relatively are at the top, but I think in general, everyone's got some cash to spend, right? Well, they have the second most and they can yeah. get even more because of the J.C. Uh, Jackson right. contract. So they have a lot of money to work with. It's just where are they going to spend that money is the big thing. Yeah, well, I, I guess I got to check out the other O-linemen, but they got to get someone, I feel like, a veteran at yeah. least. Yeah, we shall see. All right, Jamie, good stuff, man. Thank you, Brian. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in, 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Surdy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com RG in Colorado, Iowa, Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, Vermont, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia or call one 800 522 4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 